Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, the Mandalorians nuked a moon from orbit, as is their wont, and Feln was killed after blowing up a treasure trove of Sith artifacts in half his town. But more importantly, we discussed ancient Sith manicure techniques. Now, in episode 18, Zane clears his good name, the Covenant stages a hostile takeover, and more big, big explosions. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. We are on the Night of the Old Republic comic, Turnabout and Vindication, written by John Jackson Miller. It's a published in 2008, and there's a one-issue interlude and then a four-issue arc. Turnabout is the single-issue sandwiched between two arcs that largely serves as the bridge between Exalted and Vindication. Turnabout is uh, primarily notable for one item. They reveal that Alec formerly known as Squint, and Darth Malak, the main antagonist of Knights of the Old Republic, are the same person. This is a kind of name switching we haven't seen since Ben Kenobi turned out to be Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, Alex, it's real shocking. Real, real mind bender there. Yeah. Alex's poorly disguised Sith Endgame is finally laid bare in the text, though John Jackson Miller did confirm the conceit was intentional. While it might not have been as clear in our retelling, the comic makes it quite clear by a number of overt visual cues that Alec would eventually fall, becoming Darth Malak, especially after losing his hair to Demigol in the Flashpoint arc. Um, he's always wearing flowing red armor, palling around with the Revanchus leader. He gets the same weird blue-gray stripe head tattoos that kind of look like the uh, University of Michigan football helmet. You know, that kind of thing. Look, I just put that University of Michigan thing together yesterday and added that. So, I mean, like, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that one today. If somebody else did that first, you know, just just keep it to yourself. Let me be proud of it for a minute anyway. Um, uh, still talking a little bit of uh, meta here. The arc Vindication uh, follows and is easily the most lore-driven backstory intensive arc we've done to date not just of the KOTOR comics, uh, but of anything to this point in the podcast. While it does bring closure to Zane Carrick's fugitive story, it also delves deeply into the how and why of the Force and the hubris of divining prophecy, especially when it involves your own death. It also, it also just has so many interesting parts and pieces to make up a wonderful whole. Will a character graft new Sith artifacts with DDS names to their body piecemeal, like a character in an RPG? Y- yes. Will Will this go down as another episode that shows the shocking ineptitude of the Jedi Order and their inability to police their own, let alone be the defenders of peace and justice that the galaxy needs? Well, of course, yes. <sighs> Are Hammerhead Corvettes featured prom- prominently? Hell yes. Is one-fourth of this entire arc devoted to Great Sith War flashbacks? Absolutely. And speaking of, remember late in the Great Sith War when we briefly mentioned the Battle of Taparawa and said we'd go in-depth on it later when the battle showed up as part of the plot? Well, it's later, and the Battle of Taparawa is very much part of the plot. Uh, At the end of Indication, there are 15 issues left in the KOTOR comics. And then it's on to the real KOTOR. 
right after the five issue <laughs> KOTOR comic follow-up. Then we promise we will talk about the best thing that ever happened to Star Wars for as long as humanly possible. For our characters, we have pretty much everyone who has shown up in the series at this point, but let's jog those memories anyway. That means Zane, Admiral Saul Karath, Zamar, Lucian Dre, Vandar Toker, Shell, Jevalon, Hazen, Alec, the Mumo Bros, Slisk, Barsandre, Nob, Hulis, Jariel, Vruk Lamar, Canilia, Captain Dalan Morvis, Carthanasi, Arkajeth, LB, and uh, definitely some we missed. We've got some new characters on top of that, straining the credibility and begging to be Scrabble pieces. There is Dasa, a Nautilon bounty hunter who lived on Arcania and avoided a Jedi. She later shows up at the Battle of Toprawa with Sith tattoos as a member of the Brotherhood of Sith. This likely means a s- simply a minion, since she doesn't exhibit force powers, but who knows? There's Krenda Dre, and oh yeah, she's not new, but look, until now, she's ex- appeared as an expository character in the flashbacks or solely by name as a reviewed teacher, but this arc is where we really get to see what she's like. If you're expecting us to reveal that she's a monster who's been orchestrating all of this from the top, hell-bent on attaining power and Sith artifacts, then prepare to be disappointed. Um, and so it's not a character new, but there's the Rogue Moon Prophecy. The vision that caused the deaths of the four Padawans and Zane's outlaw status is fulfilled in Vindication, mostly. Remember, the four seers of the First Watch Circle all saw a Sith Lord wearing red armor, destroying the Jedi Order, and then each saw their own death. Ronate was to die on Taurus amid fire and rubble during the Mandalorian invasion. Check! Felon was to die at the hands of his subjects, his lightsaber replaced by a stick in his hand. Check! Zamar was leading a Republic fleet when his own ships fired upon him. Not yet. Canelia saw dead Jedi everywhere as she ran to save a dead Kundadre. Double nope. Um, but don't forget about the Prophecy of the Five, which Krinda experienced in the presence of Hazen in 3988, in Zane's vision from the end of commencement, where he saw the one master who confessed would live. Our old locations, we are um, in Arcania in a flashback, and we're on Coruscant, and for new locations, we get to Toprawa, situated in the Outer Rim near the Hidian Way trade route. The world is covered in forest and has extensive cave systems, we know nothing about why there was a battle fought there during the Great Sith War, but we do know it was bloody, with both sides suffering heavy casualties. And both arcs occur in 3963 before the Battle of Yavin. Vindication also visits 4006, 3996, and 3969 via flashback. Outside of those years, the arc takes place entirely within the span of one night on Coruscant. It's like a bad movie title. All right. The story. Jedi High Council members Vruk Lamar and Vandar Toker visit one of the seedier parts of Coruscant looking for leads on the Jedi Covenant conspiracy and seeking a shadowy figure named Captain Malik. Toker is a member of Yoda's species and about the same height, so he uses one of those hover chairs Yoda has in the prequels to move around more easily. It's not necessary to the story. I just thought it was kind of cute. The two old masters finally meet their contacts, Shell Jellivan and Alec, now going by Captain Malik to conceal his identity. 
since Lucian put out an arrest warrant on him. That's right. This guy nearly destroyed the Jedi and the Republic. And when it came time to choose his his own cool evil villain name, he looked at his name tag and said the first thing he thought of. Shell and Malik get down to business. They plead Zane's innocence and expose some covenant secrets, but they've got more. Carrick wants to come in and expose something so big it will rock the entire Jedi Order. Toker and Lamar have both seen footage of what occurred at Jebel and know something is out of place, but are troubled by allegations of a cabal within the Order. The group continues talking long into the night, trying to form a plan uh, or, or some sort of arrangement. And a brief aside here, if you learn nothing else from this podcast, at least remember that Yoda is about... 0.66 centimeters or about 26 inches tall, both in canon and legends. This means he's about the same height as the average six month old American child. That has nothing to do with anything, but it's just my favorite thing. Yoda, smaller than you think. Mm-hmm. He is. It's like a like a little like a little <laughs> dog. In orbit. Admiral Saul Karath requires a walking cane and his foot is in a boot, still feeling the effects of the affair aboard the Arcanian Legacy. He has a new flagship, the Swiftcher. He didn't lose his post following Sirocco or his actions during the affair aboard the Arcanian Legacy after all. Sometimes Republic is just hard up for admirals. Joining him on the deck is Master Zamar, who is familiar with the Republic Navy from past actions. The fleet, composed of a couple of capital ships and dozens of hammerhead corvettes, hell yeah, has blockaded the capital, similar in al- to the alignment where they were in at Sirocco before the Mandalorians glassed In response to that disastrous loss, however, the Navy made some big changes to their protection and blockade tactics. To that end, Admiral Karath initiates the Van Gervalis chain, a tactical protocol that causes the assembled Republic ships to assume positions as side-by-side chain of ships encircling Coruscant. The circular maneuver isn't the only advancement from the Vangelar's chain, however, in order to provide complete protection. The Swiftsure is equipped with an AI sensor package that overrides all manual commands from the ships in the chain and adjusts according to enemy tactics. All weapons, movement, and reactions from the fleet are done by the AI sensor package on the Swiftsure. Of course, this means the blockade is impenetrable because when has an AI ever failed. Zamar rightly points out that this leaves no room for the soldiers to make split-second decisions and react to changes in circumstances a complaint Karath agrees with. However, Karath is just an admiral, and the Republic ordered the AI daisy chain, so he will do his duty. Besides, he doesn't care how foolish the tactic is as long as he can get another shot at Zane. When the Mumo Willowa Again, the Mumo Willowa drops from hyperspace near Coruscant. It looks like he will get his shot. The Willowa, despite our jokes, is a formidable gunship, and its shields even handle five Republic cruisers firing on it at once. But even it won't survive this, right? Zane orders the crew to fire solely to stun the Republic starships, uh, starfighters, reasoning that it's a bad idea to kill soldiers you're ostensibly aligned with in order... on the way to prove your innocence. Now, the Willowall is hailed by Lieutenant Carthonassi, who lost his bridge post for his role in Zane's escape and is in no mood to help his old friend. Carth, leading a small group of starfighters, begins shooting to disable since the entire crew is wanted for questioning. The gunship holds together 
as they near the chain and the hammerhead corvettes begin firing too. Zane finally allows the crew to fire to fire live munitions against the larger ships, but it's not enough. One gunship can't defeat 20 or 30 cruisers and a couple of capital ships working in perfect sync. A frontal assault on Coruscant is out of the question, at least not in this ship. Aboard the Switcher, Admiral Karath is already fist-pumping, celebrating his success. So fist-pumping is something that exists both in our universe and theirs. The Vangervelis chain worked perfectly, and Zane is nearly captured. Uh, but Zane warns him that Zane never... But Zaymar warns... Karath, that Zane never attempts anything by brute force, always relying on misdirection to succeed. Karath has no time for second guessing and tells Zaymar to go help with a starfighter if he's so concerned. It's not like they're going to shoot him or anything. Despite Karath's comment being sarcasm, the kiln Jedi is shaken to the core, remembering the rogue moon prophecy. Zaymar, his mind made up, takes his leave and heads for the docking bay. Outside, the Willowall nearly made it to the chain when it starts breaking up. Its shields are gone, and it's about to be destroyed, so Zane and Jeriel hatch a truly bad plan. Zane and Griff make for one of the ship's smuggler compartment with a collection of Sith relics, and the damaged Willowall makes a beeline for the Swiftsure's docking bay. The Willowall plows through the Swiftsure's docking bay, causing major damage, fires, and a ton of commotion. Takes the Republic a while to open the doors to the ship, but Zane and Griff are nowhere to be found. Outside, Karth notices his personal ship, the Deadweight, flying away from the Swiftsure toward the capital below. His squad members nearly shoot, but he advises to let it go, knowing that Zane is the pilot and that the Force is with him. Down on Coruscant, it's either a very late night or very early morning, when the Toker, Lamar, Shell, and Malak finally leave the seedy cantina. Malik received Zane's signal, and they are ready to move on to the next step of the plan. Toker seems to believe the story and notes that the Dre Trust has enough funding that it could easily be used to create shadow agents and watch circles. In case it isn't clear, the Dre's are so wealthy that two Jedi Masters can easily conceive of Krinda funding the full-time underground work of hundreds of agents and seers, equipment, ships, etc. That's a lot of family money. Not to mention the fact that the Krinta Dre has been training students for 30 years without the oversight of the council. Easily enough time to build a loyal army. However, the two masters conclude that the circumstantial evidence isn't enough. Hell, even the trove of Sith relics wouldn't be enough for them to go after someone as wealthy and beloved as Krinta Dre. She's one of the only heroes left from the Great Sith War and is revered within the Order, not just by the Covenant, accusing Krinda without a smoking blaster would destroy the Jedi. Thus, in order to clear Zane's name, one of the first Watch Circle members will have to confess. At that moment, Samar appears behind the group and says he may be ready to make a deal. Zane and Griff, who he captured just after they landed, are held at lightsaber point as hostages. This is where uh, turnabout ends and vindication begins. All right, so here's their plan. First, Zaymar will lead Griff and Zane, disguised as a Sith, into the Dre estate as prisoners and demand to see Krenda Dre so she can analyze Carrick. Second, Zane and Griff create a big distraction, allowing Zaymar to sneak off, free Krenda, and lower the estate's security system. Third, a large assembly of Jedi Knights and Masters loyal to the High Council will storm the grounds of the estate to arrest the members and seize evidence. 
It's really easy, simple plan that doesn't involve a lot of people, right? As the trio approach the Dre estate, we see it's much more than a palatial mansion. It's a fortified compound that covers entire city blocks on the upper levels of Coruscant, surrounded by large walls and gates. You would think someone would notice walls that large being built and hundreds of attendants who all carry lightsabers just meandering around the grounds. Yeah, but whatever, it's Star Wars. Uh, the group gets in and Zane really looks the part. He's wearing itchy colored contacts to change his eyes into Sith yellow, feigning a Sith voice that hurts his throat, and has his lightsaber concealed in a very convincing fake of the mere talisman clenched around his neck. Inside the compound, there are hundreds of adherents to the Covenant, but many just to Crindadre. Some are fanatics, some simply agree with her position, but Zamar says there are more Jedi who support Crindadre than even... He knows, and the price for his confession was that Crendadre received full immunity. Zamar then tells Griff that he can see the future, which is why he stowed away on the dead weight and got the jump on them so easily. Actually, Zamar says that he can see many futures, and he was just looking at the wrong one until very recently. Just like Doctor Strange, he saw 14,605 futures. It doesn't say that number. We just added it for a rhetorical flourish, but he does imply uh, that he's been looking at the wrong future. So maybe there's a multiverse. Anyway, uh, before entering the mansion to meet the other First Watch Circle members, Zane asks Zaymar if he really believes that he will become a Sith in the future. Zaymar admits he's not sure, but he's also no longer competent to decide, though neither is Lucian Dre, who lied about getting approval for the Padawan massacres from Krenda and has now turned Quinilia into a suicidal mess. Inside the manse, Lucian and Quinilia are waiting in a room lined with lightsaber-wielding guards. Introductions are exchanged, and Lucian prepares to kill Zane, but Zamar steps in demanding to see Krinda so that they can prevent the murder talisman from finding another host upon Zane's death. Hazen enters the room and agrees, but denies Zamar's request to see Lady Dre because she is meditating with the Circle Kulu, whatever that is. Hazen claims that he will examine Zane while Lucian won't let Carrick near his mother because of the prophecy. As the plan begins to fall apart, Zane whispers to Zamar to open the gate while he and Griff create a distraction. Zamar is worried about Krinda, but Kark promised Celeste Morn to help Dre, and this will have to do. In order to free Zamar, Zane, still feigning Sith, makes a charge at Hazen. He claims to have more Sith artifacts along with the power to use them. Zamar confirms the red suitcase of relics was left on the ship and is sent to retrieve it. Hazen, meanwhile, exposes Zane's disguise after sensing no hint of darkness in either Kark or the false talisman. In the outer courtyard, Zamar opens the main gate and the estate is stormed by hundreds of Jedi, led by Master Vruk Lamar. This may be the only thing Lamar does the entire time we see him where he's not being a total asshole. He's just risking his own life, leading his order. The Jedi fight their covenant brothers and sisters as hundreds of lightsabers clash across the enormous compound. In the main room, the plan falls apart completely when security alarms begin to sound, but that's the least of anyone's concerns. Hassan, having played us off for chumps, Issues command phrase vindication to all Covenant agents, initiating a galaxy-wide coup against the Jedi Order. All right, admit it. You didn't think the evil mastermind behind an ultra-secret, hardline, conservative, galaxy-spanning cabal set up from within the Jedi Order and comprised of hundreds of Jedi would be Krendig Dre's lackey and all-around doofus Hazen, right? 
Well, Vindication, Vindication wasn't like an Order 66 kill switch engage type deal. It was a well-played long con by Hazen. It signaled to hundreds of Jedi outside the Dre estate to take a number of pre-planned measures due to a supposed uh, Sith presence on the Jedi Council and to help contain it. Some Jedi on Coruscant severed the Jedi High Temple's lines of communications, while others secured storehouses of Jedi and Sith artifacts for the Covenant. Finally, all were ordered to fall back to the Dre estate and defend it from attack and save the Jedi Order. The Covenant Jedi truly believe that they are fighting for the light and fighting to protect the Jedi Order. Lucian and Quinilia see the insurrection for what it is, a palace coup engineered by Hazen to amass power, even if the other members of the Covenant do not. Hazen claims it was all made possible by Lucian in his seat on the council. Dre is leading is is reeling, pleading with anyone who will listen that he never intended this to happen. But then Hazen, re- Hazen reveals part of his impressively long con. The failed Padawan says he, he always gave Lucian what he wanted or used the force to make him want other things. In fact, Hazen has manipulated every major event in Lucian's life in some way, including his relationship with Quinilia. But he just did that for laughs. No, really, it, it says that. He he laughs about it. Zane and Griff are about to spoil the fun, though, as they reveal that Zaymar confessed earlier and the Jedi attackers are just outside the door. So Hazen's short coup is over just before, just as it began, right? Not likely. This plan is 33 years in the making, after all. At the press of a button on Hazen's wrist, um, Attached to his prosthetic right arm, Republic ships fire on the estate, destroying a sky bridge that was the main point of entry. Hazen has control of the orbiting Republic blockade via the Vengevala's chain, and Republic ships are firing upon their own capital, killing thousands at the Covenant compound. Zamar can only watch helplessly as his own ships bombard the courtyard next, killing him and many other Jedi, both Covenant and otherwise. The killed Jedi died by friendly fire, as the rogue moon prophecy predicted, though he wasn't at the head of a Republic ship or facing Mandalorians at the time. It seems that his confession and attempt to change his future altered it somewhat, but not enough for him to survive. The ships above continue firing in seemingly indiscriminate fashion, even blowing out palace walls at this point. That's when Hazen decided it was time to reveal his true allegiance. Throwing off robes and donning a ceremonial helmet, the formerly failed Padawan produces a body fully covered in Sith relics and sports a ma- the crimson red lightsaber of a Sith. Hell, he's holding the sword, the sword of Landis later on too. Yeldis, either way, the sword's power could be heightened by the helm of Dathka Grush, but that was destroyed by Felon during the Exalted Arc. You know in an RPG when you've been grinding for the best gear and you finally get that one piece you've been looking for? Yeah, you're listening to a Star Wars Old Republic podcast, so you probably know what min-maxing a character in a video game or a pen and paper RPG means. In case you're unclear, you throw all that gear on your character, spec them out just right, their stats go through the roof, and you're ready to fight whatever you've been avoiding during the gear grind. That's Hazen right at this moment. He's ascendant, and that means it's just about time for an entire issue flashback showing his supervillain origin story. Look, if you're going to give me a, a flashback to uh, 
the time of uh, Tales of the Jedi, then I'm all for it. In 4006 BBY on the snowy world Arcania, a young Hazen is a Padawan under Arkajeth, along with Barriss and Dre and Krenda Hulis. Hazen and, and Zane have a lot in common, but, appe- but it appears Hazen's grip of the Force is even more tenuous. In the flashback, Hazen is chasing after a bounty, a bounty, a Nautilan bounty hunter, excuse me, named Dasa for like the tenth time. But when Dasa outsmarts Hazen, she's able to steal his lightsaber and nearly kills him by toppling a marble statue via blaster shot. Only Barris and Dre's timely intervention with the Force stopped the statue from crushing Hazen. This detour causes them to arrive fashionably late for a reception honoring Hazen, or honoring the students, becoming Jedi that evening. The party is being thrown by Arko Adaska's grandfather because he wants Barrison to remain an investor in his companies and not take up, quote, a life of levitating rocks. So, I mean, maybe Ray was right in The Last Jedi, and that's all it was about just levitating rocks. Uh, the newly formed Dre Trust is mentioned several times, but Adaska shrugs it off. The party is decadent, and it is clear that Hazen is badly out of place. Also of interest, Krenda's father, the Miraluka Jedi, Noah Pulis, is pictured here drunk and very loose with the tongue. He blurts out that Hazen was Barrison's steward prior to entering the Order, and this shows that rich and poor alike can serve. Everyone is embarrassed, but Krenda finally arrives, having accepted an offer to become Master Vodosiask Boss's student after they are made Jedi. Hazen is clearly jealous of Barrison's life and is infatuated with Krenda. It is clear that the three students are close friends, but it's also clear that Hazen is a third wheel to Barrison and Krenda's romance. Things only get worse that night, though, as Dre and Hulis are both knighted, but Hazen is denied. Barging in, demanding to know why he wasn't given the honor, Master Arka says that Hazen never worked to improve his mastery of the Force, and his thoughts lack organization. Essentially, he shared in his friend's victories without helping. Embittered, Hazen lashes out and leaves only to be chased by Barrison. Hazen says some things, but he doesn't mean that saying Dre used his money to get ahead with the Jedi and buy Krindle's love. Barrison lets most of it slide, but finally punches some sense into Hazen after he insulted Krinda. Dre agrees to let it go since Hazen has had a terrible day and is simply lashing out, but it's clear some tension remains. Barrison also says he won't cast Hazen out, completely keeping him on as a retainer to help in various ways. During the next decade, Barrison and Krenda would marry and welcome a son named Lucian into the world. The Great Sith War would begin, and Hazen would just be angry. A decade later, in 3996, the Great Sith War is nearing its conclusion, and the Jedi have fought and won a terrible victory on the Outer Rim world Toprawa, led by a grizzled Barrison Dre. Hazen serves him as a combat mortician, taking care of bodies left on the battlefield. Following the battle, Hazen is frustratedly performing his duties when his old friend Dasa appears, sporting Sith tattoos to boot. Always one to antagonize da- uh, Hazen just because. Dawson, Dasa mocks ha- Hazen, God, as Barris and Dre's little droid who should be fitting, fitted with a restraining bolt. 
standing on heaps of stinking dead bodies for ten years finally takes its toll, and after enough needling from the Nautilin, Hazen admits that the only thing he's ever wanted is Barrison's life. Thus, the two concoct a plan to remove Dre from the picture, allowing Hazen to step in. Later that day, Hazen leads Barrison and a handful of Jedi into the underground caverns in search of the last Sith base on the world. Once the Jedi were bottled up in the caverns, Hazen ran ahead, alerting Dasa to blow the charges. Not wanting for Hazen to... Not wanting for Hazen to clear the blast zone, Dasa set off the explosives, killing the entire Jedi contingent in the cave and catching Hazen in the fire and debris. Sometime later, Hazen awakens in the Taparawa caves. He's horrified to find his body is more machine than man now and and that a giant red three-eyed teddy bear covered in covered with Sith tattoos named... Iberla, I think, perform the operations. Uh, we, we don't even know a species on Uberla. Uh, I looked on Wikipedia. There's We, we don't even know. Uh, Hazen lost his hair, his right eye, his right arm, both his legs, but was recovered by Sith medics who were able to stabilize him and have the big Sith teddy bear doctor fit him with a number of prosthetics. Hazen is devastated. He wanted to kill Barrison and step into his old life, but now he's got no hair and his prosthetics aren't even human ones. His right hand has claws instead of fingers. Dalsa, however, says the prosthesis are his pay for helping kill Dre and the other Jedi because they aren't just spare parts. They're Sith artifacts. We don't learn the names of the relics used to replace Hazen's legs, his arms, or his right eye, but Uberla does mention that Hazen has a whole new spine, literally and figuratively. They had to fix his broken back, so they inserted a relic called the Yoke of Seeming to stabilize his spine. That's right, Hazen not only wears the artifacts, they're part of him. The Yoke's origin is unknown, but its effects are not, causing the living force to flow past, not through the wearer, so that their intentions are totally clouded to other Force users. It doesn't change perceptions of the future, though, which is a huge coincidence for a guy looking to hang out more with a Jedi seer. The yoke also subtly changes perceptions of the wearer to be positive, so it's just great for manipulations with newfound courage. Hassan thanked Dasa the only way he knew how, by murdering her for blowing the bridge early and intentionally turning him into a monstrosity. Also, all the other embarrassment. Hazen claims he isn't a Jedi or Sith, but something more. He then went about serving Dre as a retainer for more than 30 years, helping her found the Jedi Covenant to prevent the rise of the Sith. The flashback finally moves to 3969 BBY during Hazen's service to Krinda. The two meet on the balcony on the Dre estate with Hazen going over some dull Covenant news. Though he does mention they used Dre trust funds to obtain a controlling interest in the bleeding edge military technology called the Van Gervalis chain. Grinda thanks her steward for his help, and then emotionally thanks him for everything he's done to help with the Covenant illusion. That's when Hazen shoots a shot, asking if they could have ever gotten together if things had turned out different, but Dre dismisses it as overstepping his bounds. At that, the flashback ends. Hazen may help Grinda, his plan may be a work of Machiavellian art, but he'll never replace Barrison. He'll never have the one thing he covets most deeply. Above Coruscant, high treason is in the air, or so Karath believes. 
he is ready to have newly minted Captain Dallin Morvis executed. But while Morvis may be a sniveling trust fund baby, he's not a turncoat. None of the Republic ships in orbit are firing on the Republic capital on purpose, of course. The Vangervalis chain was hacked and is being controlled from outside the fleet. Whatever slave the system is impenetrable to them, and the only way to stop the orbitable, orbitable, ugh, my goodness, orbital bombardment is to destroy the Swiftsure, where the chain's AI sensor package is housed. Well, they could find the culprit, but that seems unlikely. So another capital ship under Solcaras' command will be lost, and the Admiral finally comes to the correct conclusion. AI defense systems are a bad idea. The Swiftsure is, is ordered abandoned, and the scuttling process begins, though it will take some time. Within atmosphere at the Dreyas state, Hazen explains to Lucian and Zane what we learned via implication in the flashback. When he learned of the Vangervalis chain, he used the Dre, the Dre Trust to purchase the company, then pushed the design past the Republic Admiralty with one small design change. A slave circuit was inserted connect, connecting directly to Hazen's wrist comm built into his prosthetic arm. Uh, Hazen knows the fleet will find a way to deactivate the chain soon enough, but it will serve its purpose now by delaying and killing the Jedi. Uh, again, uh, Hazen isn't some common villain leaving tiny details to chance. He did this all 35 minutes ago, just like Ozymandias from Watchmen. Uh, Lucian has had enough, both of Hazen's schemes and his incessant monologuing. He goes for the kill. Unfortunately, Hazen uh, is protected against, Hazen protected against this inevitability too, easily deflecting Dre's lightsaber strike with a red force field of dark side energy and throwing him across the room. Laughing, Hazen brandishes the most important Sith artifact he wears, the Gauntlet of Crush the Younger. Worn over Hazen's prosthetic arm, the Gauntlet is imbued with Sith magic to prevent anyone or anything from touching the wearer without their consent. The Gauntlet was created prior to 5000 BBY by Ludo Crush to protect his son, Elcho. Lucian, never one to learn his lesson the first time, tries to strike Hazen down again and is thrown off the balcony for his trouble. Jedi loyal to the council finally breach the palace but are killed by a torrent of force lightning from Hazen's flesh and blood left arm. Remember, force lightning couldn't come from a prosthetic limb in Legends for some reason or another. Zane, Lucian, and Griff are at a loss. They have no response for Hazen, and things are about to get worse. Not only is Hazen monologuing again, but he's giving his own personal interpretation of the prophecy too. The failed Padawan is declaring the prophecy of the five complete, and coincidentally, that all the players are in the palace too. Candelia is one of the is the one for the light and the darkness. Griff is the one for the darkness and the light. Lucian is the one for the darkness. Zane is the one for the light, and Hazen himself is the one who stands apart from all. Believing this, Hazen intends to lead dual armies of Jedi and Sith while wielding both sides of the Force. He might claim to be something between light and dark side, but clearly he's just a Sith by any other name. Hazen states that if he were to take a Sith moniker like they had in days of old, he would be Darth Hayes, I, for the clouds of deception he created. Sigh. That was a sigh. <laughs> it's Darth Dad joke, more like it. Jeez. Darth Hayes. Hazen then tosses his red lightsaber to Lucian. 
saying that the one in the darkness will train his new Sith army, since he already has hundreds of Jedi followers. Kinnelia recovered from the earlier explosions and fled upstairs to protect Krinda with Griff following. Zane gets his lightsaber back from Hazen and tries to follow as well, but Lucian stopped his former apprentice with the red lightsaber, fearing for his mother's life. Brief note. Because Lucian will be his Sith apprentice, Hazen suggests a couple of monarch, dark side monikers to think about for later, one of which is Darth Sion, spelt S-I-O-N. Now, that's a really specific name to suggest in a peculiar way to spell it, because Hassan is mocking Lucian for being the last scion of a once-proud house. You know, scion typically spelled S-C-I-O-N. If you're familiar with Knights of the Old Republic 2, which takes place about 12 years after Vindication, then you'll know that one of the game's primary antagonists is a human named Darth Sion. Again, spelled S-I-O-N. If Luci- is Lucian this Sith Lord? No. John Jackson Miller soon confirmed it was just a reference. But we feel like that is why you're here, right? I wanna get I wanna get to I wanna get to Knights of the Old Republic too. And well I I wanna get to Knights of the Old Republic as well. I also want to get to Knights of the Old Republic too, the sequel to the first game. Alright. Upstairs, a Shakespearean tragedy unfolds. Quinilia in her efforts to protect Krenda killing a number of uh killed a number of jet of covenant jedi guards but it was all for naught krenda had a stroke some days earlier leaving her unable to speak and did not respond to treatment now she lies in state in a blue coffin with a with a clear lid for viewing the body quinilia was already suicidal before losing her mother figure and teacher, and this is the final straw, when Griff finds the Miraluka Jedi lamenting Lady Krenda's fate, she's already swallowed a cup of poisoned wine so that they can be together again, both one with the Force. Cornelia tells Griff that she's accepted the Rogue Moon prophecy has come to fat to pass because she saw herself on Coruscant surrounded by many dead Jedi trying to save a human female Jedi and, well, just look where they are now. Zane had killed Ronate and Felne, and now he'd killed her too. Sadly for Quinilia, her entire worldview is about to be shattered moments before she dies. As Griff held her weakening body, he, he kind of laughingly explained that he was actually the Sith Lord in the Red Armor from the Rogue Moon Prophecy. The Snivian reveals that he blew up the building under Rana and stole Felne's lightsaber and well, yeah, Zane and the other Padawans did wear the red spacesuit. Uh, so did Jeriel, Malik, and uh, even Griff. Now you're thinking that's preposterous because Snivians are like half the size of a human, and you're absolutely right. But Griff said he wore it while trying to find a comfy place to sleep on the rat last resort, which even <laughs> makes it all the more bitter and ironic for Quinilia. Nearing death, she brings up Zane's, quote, prophecy from the end of commencement that uh, where he said the one who would confess would live. Griff explains that those were his words made up because they needed time to gather evidence against the covenant and knowing that a threat from a supposed Sith Lord would scare them off. Zane's prophecy does seem quite implausible due to his special relationship with the Force, but recall the Terrace Masters believe Carrick had already fallen to the dark side. Griff, getting the last laugh, says that anyone who knew Zane would know that he'd never make threats like that. Guess the Masters didn't know their students so well after all, huh? Cornelia's death wasn't experienced simply because she learned a bitterly ironic truth in her dying moments, 
but also because the love over whom she committed suicide wasn't dead yet. Corinne de Dre was not in a casket as both Griff and Canelia had assumed. She was locked in an obuliette like the one that Celeste Morn had been placed in. Griff was astonished at the discovery, but had no way to open the device. So he broke the glass lid encasing Krinda and helped her downstairs while Lucian had been chasing Zane for a while. That ends when Lucian sees his mother and rushes to her side, force pushing Griff into a column for touching her. To this point in the story, we've heard a lot of really good things about Krinda Dre, but know nothing of her motives. It's been obvious since the first issue that the Jedi Covenant is fanatical, and now it's obvious that they've been led by Hazen under a Sith influence for quite some time. But how much did Krinda know? She's certainly negligent in organizational oversight, but she didn't approve of the child's slaughter, right? Even Zane was determined to meet Krinda and explain what happened to her, because Celeste Morn promised him she would never have approved of it. Turns out Celeste and everyone else was right about Lady Krinda, but it might not matter because she's living on borrowed time. Many months ago in late 3964, moments after Lucian called in the rogue, the rogue moon prophecy to Coruscant to get approval for the Padawan massacre, his mother had a vision of the first watch circle killing their students. Unfortunately, she had the stroke immediately after the vision and Hazen locked her in the obelette where she saw the vision of the massacre over and over again. It was agony, but the only thing that got her through it was knowing that Lucian would never do something like that which he technically didn't. He just ordered others to do it and committed attempted murder from his uh, for his own part. Uh, Krenda, moments uh, from her death with tears in her eyes, says that the mission wasn't worth the lives of children and asked Lucian who could have taught him that, th- that it was. The younger Dre replied, essentially, I, I learned it from watching you, Mom. Uh, Lady Krenda begged her son to face the future with humility and died in his arms. With Krenda's, dead, with Krenda's death, the rogue moon prophecy is finally mercifully finished. Lucian is enraged at the death of his beloved mother and blames Griff for killing her by breaking her out of the Sith Obliette. Despite the fact that she was being tortured in there and Hazen only kept her alive so she could die at the right time to turn Lucian to the dark side. Hazen, his one good eye burning Sith yellow, is delighted as Dre gives into the dark side on cue and demands vengeance against Griff. Zane and Lucian duel through the palace with Carrick, trying to reach his old master the entire time. Finally, upon seeing a video screen of Hazen murdering Jedi with fort lighting and with his mother's dream burning before his eyes, Lucian sees the light and agrees to hatch a plan with Zane to stop Hazen. It's gotta be good, real good, to beat Hazen. Moments later, Hazen has recovered the Jedi Temple Sith artifacts in the palace courtyard when Griff is thrown down by an enraged Lucian. Zane follows, and the two clash lightsabers before Lucian is felled by a falling statue of his father, Barrison, and Carrick finishes the job by plunging his lightsaber in for good measure. Griff is stunned because Zane isn't a killer, and he's even more shocked when Carrick kneels and pledges loyalty to Hazen. He's intrigued by Zane's special relationship with the Force, so he allows Carrick to approach and bypass the protections of the Gauntlet of Crush the Younger. Zane's price for obedience is to stop the orbital bombardment, which Hazen agrees after one more shot, but Zane, always tricky, feigned a vision before the shot could be fired, giving him enough time to grab Hazen's prosthetic right arm, ignite his lightsaber, and slice the arm off. Hazen, in his rage, shot Zane with force lightning, pushing him close enough to grab hold of Griff. 
Before Hazen could retaliate any further, though, Griff and Zane were, thro- were both thrown completely off the Dre estate. Shocked, Hazen turns around to find mm-hmm. a still-living Lucian Dre who threw the duo with force light with, with the force. Lucian explains that the fight and statue in- incident were both acts put on so Zane could get close to Hazen. In doing so, Carrick removed both the Sith gauntlet protecting Hazen's person and the wrist comm device still controlling the Vangervalis chain in one swoop. Lucian, now in control of Hazen's prosthetic arm, calls in one final strike, leveling the Dre estate and killing both Hazen and Lucian Dre. Nearby, Zane and Griff fall safely into a sludge vat, just as intended. In the aftermath, the public is told the entire event was a, was a partially successful Mandalorian terrorist plot, a cover-up engineered by both the Republic and the Jedi. The people can't know about Hazen, his coup, or how close he really came to succeeding. The Order did tell the families of the slain Padawans the truth, at least, so, though that seems like cold consolation now. The Jedi also paid off the bounties on Griff and Zane, completely clearing their names. Zane is invited back into the Order, but declined because the Jedi didn't help him when he needed it, and there are so many little people in the galaxy that they aren't helping either. Griff, on the other hand, did help him out, so Carrick wants to keep working with his Snivian best friend for the time being, but as full partners. Malak was sent back to the rest of the Revanches with strict instructions to stay out of the war, which seems highly unlikely. Finally, in an unknown system on a moon called Dreytu, a blinded Lucian Dre survived, living a peaceful life with a few adherents. While the gauntlet of Crush the Younger saved his life from the orbital strike, he was holding it, not wearing it, so its protection wasn't total. Dre intends to help the Jedi survive their coming destruction through a merger of his mother and father's philosophies on the Force. And that concludes our story for today. Thank you for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will continue our march through the Knights of the Old Republic comics. We are so close to the end, guys. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to Fotor on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. Follow us on Twitter at FotorPod or email us at FotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter. I'm at Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.